0: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to BadlandsFood.com obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash Obscura. True crime comes in all forms, but what if a government-funded organization has been committing crimes from the start, from government black sites to human experimentation, with proof of these facts? And what if as a whole, we didn't care what crimes were happening behind closed doors? If it's easier to go about our lives ignoring them, these atrocities are the subject for these next two episodes. Now, listener... I'm not putting on a tinfoil hat. These aren't crazed conspiracies. These are well-documented crimes that were committed. I need you to understand that. These were researched from trusted sources. The information publicly available for years. With that out of the way, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. In 1953, a heinous crime was committed. At that time, it was new, potentially relevant information when Harold Blower's doctor gave him a massive drug injection, killing him by way of an overdose. The news, however, didn't report it until more than 20 years later. In this case, news outlets reported on a story 20 years after the fact because the CIA had been covering it up. Harold Blower's death was what may seem simple on the surface, but it's part of one of the most complex stories we've ever told on Obscura. We have a number of stories we're going to try and break down for you in this episode. Some of them you may be familiar with, others you may not, but it's our goal to ensure that the information contained herein is relayed in such a way that you won't miss a thing. With that in mind, You may want to dedicate some time to focusing on the story, as it isn't brief. It's winding and dripping with pertinent information. The history of the CIA's criminal activity is as interesting as it's difficult to tell. It does share some similarity with the Caprini Green episodes. A look at the crimes committed by people in positions of power, when we were told they would protect us from exactly that. Now. Is there a rational response to loss? Not really. Perhaps it depends on what kind of loss. The death of a friend or family member probably comes to mind first. But loss can only be nuanced. Divorce, a breakup, losing a child in a custody battle. It's common to hear people ascribe such losses to a death in the immediate family. Similar, yes, but not the same. Death is characterized by finality, with divorce comes the taunting knowledge that a person you love is still here, still living their life. You're just not in it anymore. At best, your role is significantly reduced, but often, you're out of the picture altogether. Is there a rational response to that? There are certainly irrational ones, even violent ones. What is the correct way to cope with this? Whether it's death, divorce, or something else, loss is traumatic. And the sting of trauma is often accompanied by an injection, a destructive poison we call depression. Similar to drain cleaner, depression's status as a common household toxin does nothing to diminish its potency. It infects us, counteracts our logic, tricks our minds into believing things we know probably aren't true, and deludes even the most astute and scholarly of academics. There's no right or wrong way to experience depression. Furthermore, sometimes depression hits for no discernible reason whatsoever. Enter Harold Blauer. At the end of 1952, he was dealing with a divorce and the depression which usually follows. Harold wasn't handling things particularly well, but he sought help when he voluntarily checked into Bellevue Hospital. Many reports omit Harold's initial check-in to Bellevue, only mentioning the fact that he was a patient at New York Psychiatric Institute. In fact, he was transferred there from Bellevue. Treatment at the New York Psychiatric Institute was overseen by Dr. Paul Hotch, who recommended the injections of experimental drugs as part of Harold's treatment. Harold wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea. In fact, according to his medical records, he was apprehensive about the whole thing requiring considerable persuasion. Despite this, doctors were able to obtain his written consent to participate in the experimental treatment. Interestingly, written consent was not required in 1952 to participate in experimental treatments. Oral consent, however, was required. A patient could remove themselves from an ongoing experiment at any point. Harold was committed to complete a successful treatment, though. and did as he was asked. Most of his treatment while at the institute consisted of standard procedures, at least for the time. He spoke to a psychiatrist regularly, and, like the conditions, against his better judgment, on December 11, 1952, Harold was injected with 28.4 milligrams of chemical EA-1298. He was unaware of what the injection was compromised of, but was told it was part of his treatment This first injection didn't exactly go well, but it wasn't catastrophic. According to records, he had a small tremor on his right leg and pressure in his head. A different chemical was used for injection number two, a week later. It was labeled EA-1316. This time he received 69.5 milligrams. It's difficult to discern what happened with his injection, but it couldn't have been good, because... Prior to his third injection, he asked one of the nurses to tell people on the drug study for that he had a cold and wouldn't be able to make it. It would seem the nurses at the New York Psychiatric Institute were either unwilling or unable to oblige Harold with this favor because injection number three came. Harold experienced tremors all over his body following this third injection. It was yet another chemical, 347.5 milligrams of something identified as EA-1297 At this point, Harold had received three separate injections of three different chemicals each one significantly higher in dosage than the one before At no point was he told what of any of the injections actually are This is the point Harold asked doctors to stop with the experimental injections They were supposed to be helping his condition, but, mostly, they were making him miserable. And, even if they were treating him in some way, the ends were not justifying the means. After coming from Bellevue, the conditions at the New York Psychiatrist Institute were nice, at least comparatively speaking. Harold was informed that, if he were to quit the experiments now, he'd have to go back to Bellevue, a place he'd hated Court documents used the word miserable, so it was either that or take a fourth injection. Apart from the hellacious injections he was receiving, Harold's treatment and therapy was going quite well at the New York Psychiatric Institute. In fact, his projected release wasn't far off. Who knew what would happen to that progress if he was sent back to Bellevue? So, he took the fourth injection. This time, Harold was injected with chemical EA-1316, which if you don't recall, was the same chemical used in injection number two, but injection number two was only 69.5 milligrams. Injection number four was to be 695 milligrams. That's 10 times the amount. Following the injection, Harold experienced full body tremors and a reaction described as violent. He shot up in bed, then fell back down, over and over. Miraculously, he pulled through. Injection number five was a repeat of injection number one, chemical EA-1298. Injection number one had been a dose of 28.4 milligrams. Injection number five was approximately 16 times that amount, or 450 milligrams. According to court records, the following transpired following Harold's fifth injection. Before Bauer's final injection, he complained about the injections often to both his therapist and the nurses. Nevertheless, on January 8, 1953, between 9.53 and 9.57 a.m., Bauer was injected with 450 mg of EA-1298. According to the drug study notes, At 9.57, Blauer became very restless and had to be restrained by the nurse. He began sweating profusely and flailing his arms wildly. At 10.01, he pulled up in bed. His body stiffened, his teeth clenched, and he began frothing at the mouth. Similar reactions continued for over an hour. Blauer was still talking and moving his legs randomly at 11.05. Finally... About one and one half hours after the injections had began, Blauer lapsed into a coma. He was pronounced dead at 12.15pm. At approximately the same time that Blauer had received his injection of EA-1298, another patient was given the same chemical. It was known in the early 1950s that the prudent course of conduct was to give injections of relatively untested chemicals such as EA-1298 serially, rather than concurrently. That is, to give an injection to one patient and analyze the result before giving an injection of the same chemical to another. The other patient's reaction to EA-1298 was similar to Blower's. however, it was so violent that the injection was stopped when it was only about one-third complete. After the patient recovered, she said, ''I've been in hell, why did they put me in hell?'' She added, They were supposed to make me feel good. I've never felt this bad before. I feel terrible. In truth, Harold was not being treated for depression with these experimental injections. He wasn't being treated for any mental issues at all, or physical ones for that matter. The only truth told to Harold about these injections were that they were experimental. Harold was being pumped full of a drug called MDA. psychostimulant and hallucinogen of the amphetamine family, not to be confused with MDMA. Court documents refer to the chemical as a mescaline derivative. The CIA and United States military has been attempting to develop this drug as a chemical warfare agent. Simply put, it was an experiment by the US government to master mind control and use it against enemies in wartime. Harold was just their lab rat or, as one judge put it, a guinea pig. The New York Psychiatric Institute was under contract with Army's Chemical Corps at the time, who had ordered the experiment but didn't specify anyone in particular as a subject. Dr. Paul Hotch had picked Harold Blauer himself. Officers from the Army's Chemical Corps met with Dr. Paul Hotch in an effort to understand what had happened with their test subject, Harold Blauer. Upon learning of his death, it was made clear that this experiment was not to be discussed with anyone under any circumstances, not Harold's ex wife or family members, and not even with the hospital staff that wasn't already in the loop. According to court documents, an Army official speaking with Dr. Paul Hotch didn't consider the experiment to be a failure. He instructed them not to continue the experiments until certain safety measures were implemented. However, He also noted in his trip report that the results of the experiments obtained thus far were very useful for the Army's purposes, that he recommended continuation of the experiments, and that $120,000 had been transferred to the Chemical Corps for this purpose. The state of New York also feared adverse publicity if it were to become known that the New York State Psychiatric Institute had performed chemical warfare experiments on its patients. This gave the state incentive to cooperate with the United States in the cover-up. The worst part? The CIA's attempt to weaponize chemical warfare agents and conduct human mind-control experiments hadn't even officially begun with Harold Blauer. This occurred during a time when their infamous secret project, known as MKUltra, wouldn't even launch for another three months. Listener, Conspiracy theories exist in every religion and among the irreligious. On August 9, 1974, one conspiracy stopped being theoretical and was confirmed when Richard Milhouse Nixon resigned from the office of President of the United States following years of investigation into the much-publicized Watergate scandal. It was a scandal so infamous that nearly every American is at least vaguely familiar With its place in history, but while everyone knows about Watergate and what it led to, not everyone understands Watergate. In fact, most people's knowledge of the subject seems to be minimal. It's important to understand, not for historical reasons, but specifically for today's episode. As Watergate led to our first discovery of the CIA's criminal activity, here's a brief rundown for context. In 1972, the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., was home to the Democratic National Committee, also known by its initialism, the DNC. President Nixon was running for re-election. During this time, five men were arrested for breaking into the offices of the DNC. Why were they there? Among other reasons, they were planting surveillance equipment, so President Nixon would be able to stay one step ahead of the opposition during his election. It came to light that all five of the men who broke into the DNC had ties to President Nixon in one way or another. One of the men, James W. McCord Jr., was an ex-CIA agent. Nixon, of course, denied he had anything to do with the break-in, tried to cover it up, obstructed justice in doing so, and ultimately resigned before he could be removed from office. Despite Nixon's vehement assertions to the contrary, history has determined that President Nixon was, in fact, a crook. Gerald Ford, Nixon's vice president, assumed the role of President of the United States, pardoned Nixon for all of his crimes, and we began a new chapter in American history. There's far more to it than that, including a Saturday night massacre, a guy called Deep Throat, two heroic journalists from the Washington Post, and a large number of tape recordings. All of these important aspects of the story, so if you're unfamiliar with Watergate, please do yourself a favor and research the whole story. But that story, while incredible and important, is only the catalyst for the one we're telling today. In 1973, before Nixon resigned, there was a lot of fear inside the government as nightly coverage of Watergate was being covered on every news channel, and every print outlet in America. Things were looking bad. The writing was on the wall regarding Nixon's future in politics. That is to say, he had no future. But Nixon could be thrown under the bus. He wasn't that important in the grand scheme of things. No one person is. Inside the headquarters of the CIA, the panic was serious. Moreover, it was justified. The CIA had been carrying out some nefarious work over the years. A man by the name of Richard Helms was the director of the CIA at the time. Amid potential looming investigations coming from all directions, Helms ordered a massive number of CIA files to be destroyed. There was information in these files he was desperate to keep covered up. We will never know what these files contained. It remains a mystery and likely always will. Be that as it may... Despite Richard Helms' best efforts, not every document he was trying to suppress was destroyed. Unbeknownst to Helms and his accomplice, some of the documents had been improperly stored and were still intact, waiting to be discovered. Time went by. Nixon resigned. Ford became president. A little over four months later, in December of 1974, the New York Times, through an undisclosed source, reported the following headline Huge CIA operation reported in U.S. against anti-war forces Other dissidents in Nixon years Today, it's difficult to imagine a similar news headline raising much of a fuss amid the barrage of the ever-present scandal and controversy dominating our current news cycle Seems like it would be just another story on the pile But times were different The same in many ways, but a nation only just becoming uncomfortable in its nativity. The president was busted, nearly impeached, and resigned. Now, whether President Ford genuinely took the New York Times report seriously or just couldn't escape the implications, he acted. He launched the United States President's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States it was pretty much exactly what the CIA director Richard Helms had feared in having all those documents destroyed. The investigation was led by Ford's vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, and was aptly dubbed the Rockefeller Commission. It wasn't the only investigation. Also formed by the United States Senate was the Church Committee, led by Idaho Senator Frank Church. A third committee was also formed by the United States House of Representatives called the Pike Committee, led by Representative Otis G. Pike. The Pike Committee report was never officially published due to the pushback from other members of Congress. The Rockefeller Commission and Church Committee, however, did release reports in 1975. These reports ultimately revealed a number of the CIA's clandestine projects, many aspects of these projects being not only illegal, but cruel and unusual, involving test subjects it wasn't until 1977 that the extent of these projects started truly coming into focus. A request made under the Freedom of Information Act to uncover tens of thousands of documents CIA Director Richard Helms thought he had destroyed. This led to a public hearing on what we hope was the CIA's darkest secret. What Was That Like is a true story podcast like you've never heard before. These are clips from a few past episodes. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the, literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be OK. And I jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on. And I looked into the garage, and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. Real people in unreal situations. Find it on your favorite podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, You slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline. Riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets, I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's Journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective, discover your inner detective. When you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android, step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. What exactly is the CIA and why do they have dark secrets? Perhaps they are doing horrible things, but maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe it's a lesser evil, and technically, in our best interest. It's a fair thing to ponder. Every American knows the CIA exists, but its principal function is often regarded as unclear. Its image is widely associated with secrecy or spies, and not without reason, but who does the CIA spy on and why? After years of vicious fighting, World War II came to an end, and Hitler was defeated. Considering World War II claimed an estimated 20 million dead soldiers and another 40 million civilian deaths, victory is a relative term. But again, Hitler was defeated, the genocide and fighting could finally stop, in part thanks to the OSS, a predecessor to the CIA. President Harry Truman took office in 1945. Despite its usefulness during World War II, Truman wasn't a fan of the OSS, for a multitude of reasons. History points to Truman having some personal problems with ranking members, but also with the organization in general. The full story is something of a lengthy and complicated one, but suffice it to say, in Truman's mind, The OSS was established for World War II. In Truman's mind, the OSS was established for World War II. After it ended, President Truman saw no further need for the organization and abolished it. That said, it didn't take long for Truman to have a change of heart. Within a year, the escalating Cold War promised a new enemy for the United States. To Truman, it was communism. This new threat prompted Truman to establish a new intelligence organization. On September 18, 1947, as if rising from the ashes of the OSS, came the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. A journalist by the name of Edward Hunter published an article in 1950 in the Miami Daily News with quite the dramatic headline. It warned of a new communist practice known as brainwashing. This supposed brainwashing was being used to force Chinese citizens into joining the ranks of the Communist Party. But just what is this business of brainwashing? Is it true that communists can, quote, change minds radically so that its owner becomes a living puppet, a human robot, without the atrocity being visible from the outside? Well, listener, that's what Edward Hunter claims, and he's not alone. The CIA was very interested in the idea of brainwashing, particularly as it related to communism. They wanted to understand brainwashing, and if necessary, use it against their enemies. This is why CIA Director Alan Dules approves Project MKUltra, if you want to reduce such a thing to a single sentence, it's possible. Project MK-Ultra can basically be described as the CIA's longest-running attempt to harness non-existent mind-control techniques as a weapon, to be used against enemies during wartime by way of illegal human drug experimentation. Insufficient a description as it is, it will work in a pinch. If, say, someone is doubting your knowledge on the subject and you're just not interested in having this conversation, but simultaneously don't want the antagonist laboring under the delusion that he or she was correct. To expound upon that truncated description, hallucinogenic drugs and mental torture techniques were used on unwitting subjects to gain insight in how the human mind could be broken down. The hope was that these techniques could be used to extract confessions from prisoners of war, or that human brains could be essentially reprogrammed to the point that a person would carry out tasks like covert assassinations for the military. It's difficult for most people to believe when they first hear about it, but it happened. One of the overall goals was to discover a truth serum, something that would make prisoners defenseless against interrogation. To the CIA's credit, who hasn't desired some kind of truth serum at one point or another in their life? With that thought in mind, liars though infuriating, do deserve some basic human rights. More specifically, still, regarding an explanation of MKUltra is a transcript from the hearing before the Committee on Human Resources in the United States Senate. This document outlines Project MKUltra and its 149 sub-projects. The document determined that the CIA was devoted to developing and testing upon human subjects. A scientist by the name of Sidney Gottlieb was put in charge of Project MK-Ultra, though he had already done extensive work with a similar CIA project known as Artichoke. Prior to that, the CIA was involved with Project Bluebird. They each dealt with drug and human experimentation. Truthfully, there was a significant lack of oversight with these prototypical projects, and plenty of atrocities were carried out during this time. Harold Blower for an example. One could say Sidney Gottlieb essentially created MKUltra. His friend Alan Dules was now director of the CIA. Both men believed heavily in the existence of mind control drugs and truth serums. It was Dulles who approved the project, but it's well known that Sidney Gottlieb was the mastermind. Prior to the approval of MKUltra, Gottlieb had some budgetary constraints but little oversight. Now, with the full approval of the CIA's director, he was free to run his new project in basically any way he so choose, and with a better budget in tow. But now, with more oversight, something of a trade-off perhaps, but by no means a victory, he would still oversee cruel and unusual experiments on human test subjects for years to come. It's really all that mattered." In an article from September 10, 2019, the New York Times characterized Gottlieb as potentially misunderstood, asking if the now-deceased CIA operative was truly a villain, or perhaps just a misguided patriot doing what he believed was right. On the surface, the latter isn't implausible, but when you dig into the details of Gottlieb, the line between poor judgment and villainy comes into sharper focus. Remember... Prior to MKUltra, Gottlieb was already pushing his human experiment agenda. He was setting up black sites at places like the New York Psychiatric Institute and pushing drug experiments on doctors like Dr. Paul Hotch, the result of which was cases like that of Harold Blower. For test subjects, Gottlieb used what he referred to as expendables drug addicts, vagrants, prisoners, and the mentally ill being among those counted. To him, they were lesser victims. He devised plans like enticing heroin addicts to participate in LSD experiments for a reward of heroin. Furthermore, not that there could possibly be a good reason for doing what the CIA did, but be that as it may, Gottlieb's experiment ultimately failed. According to Stephen Kynzer's book, Poisoner in Chief, Gottlieb was never successful in figuring out a way to effectively control the human mind but he was quite adept at destroying it. Quote, Gottlieb wanted to create a way to seize control of people's minds, and he realized it was a two-part process. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. We didn't get too far on number two, but he did a lot of work on number one. Sidney Gottlieb is not a well-known figure in American history. Most people don't know his name, significantly fewer than those familiar with your average celebrity, but his name should be remembered, not for his contributions to humanity, but for his crimes against it. As head of the MK Ultra project, he oversaw unimaginable human suffering, all of which was done with the knowledge of the CIA and funded by the United States government. Drug-induced interrogations on innocent people some of which resulted in death, but most just ending in permanent psychiatric damage. All of this in a poorly conceived effort to control the human mind. To create a Manchurian candidate, someone that could be easily manipulated and controlled, without even their own knowledge. To top things off, he's widely regarded as having been just a crap scientist. His methods were often absent of any semblance of scientific method, and today... Sound like the work of a deranged 10 year old who managed to somehow become a powerful member of the CIA. Dr. Frank Olson served as a captain in the United States Army Chemical Corps. He helped in developing chemical and biological weapons, like aerosolized versions of anthrax. Olson was working on weapons that included lipsticks laced with poison that could kill on contact with skin, and inhalers for asthma victims, which would give their user pneumonia. When he stepped down as chief of the Special Operations Division, he cited major pressure of the job and joined a CIA research station. This is where he met Sidney Gottlieb. In an article by The Guardian, Frank Olson's role is expounded upon, and it seems like between Olson and Gottlieb, if anyone was the misguided, sympathetic one, it was Olson. Quote, In his laboratory at Fort Detrick, Olsen directed experiments that involved gassing or poisoning laboratory animals. These experiences disturbed him. He'd come to work in the morning and see a pile of dead monkeys. That messes with you. He wasn't the right guy for that. Olsen also saw human beings suffer. Although not a torturer himself, he observed and monitored torture sessions in several countries, in CIA safe houses in Germany, according to one study. Olson witnessed horrific, brutal interrogations on a regular basis. Detainees who were deemed expendable, suspected spies or moles, security leaks, etc., were literally interrogated to death in experimental methods combining drugs, hypnosis, and torture to attempt to master brainwashing techniques and memory erasing. He was one of several Special Operations Division scientists who were in France on 16 August 1951, when an entire French village, Pont Saint-Espirit, was mysteriously seized by mass hysteria and violent delirium that afflicted more than 200 residents, and caused several deaths. The cause was later determined to have been poisoning by Ergot, the fungus from which LSD was derived. Perhaps most threatening of all, if U.S. forces did indeed use biological weapons during the Korean War, for which there is circumstantial evidence but no proof, Olson would have known. The prospect that he might reveal any of what he had seen or done was terrifying. Olsen's doubts deepened. In spring 1953, he visited the top-secret microbiological research establishment at Porton Down in Wiltshire where government scientists were studying the effects of sarin and other nerve gases. On May 6th, a volunteer subject, a 20-year-old soldier, was doused with sarin there, began foaming at the mouth, collapsed in convulsions, and died hours later. Afterward, Olsen spoke about his discomfort with the psychiatrist who helped direct the research, William Sargent. A month later, Olsen was back in Germany, on that trip, according to a later reconstruction of his travels, Olsen visited a CIA safe house near Stuttgart where he saw men dying, often in agony, from the weapons he had made. After stops in Scandinavia and Paris, he returned to Britain and visited Sargant again. Immediately after their meeting, Sargant wrote a report saying that Olsen was deeply disturbed over what he had seen in a CIA safe house in Germany. And displayed symptoms of not wanting to keep secret what he had witnessed. Unquote. Not to attempt to absolve Frank Olsen of the experiments which he was involved, but he certainly seemed to have a conscience about it and even appeared to be ready to act on this. In 1953, shortly after the official of MKUltra, Gottlieb was regularly holding retreats. They were gatherings of CIA scientists. Army scientists, and technical service staff, Sidney Gottlieb had been harboring a kind of goal. He wanted to know exactly how much LSD a human being could withstand before his mind was essentially erased. In doing this, he hoped to implant that blank mind with a new personality, or, more importantly, a set of directives. He was so dedicated to his cause, even fellow members of the CIA were not immune to his experiments. Frank Olson attended the retreat with a number of his colleagues, but later into the trip, became mortified to find out that Gottlieb had spiked his whiskey with LSD. Frank's boss, Vincent Rouet, who was also dosed, described the incident as the most frightening experience he'd ever had or hoped to have. In the following days, Olson experienced a mental breakdown. He'd been an integral part of Project MKUltra and knew many of the CIA's secrets regarding it. His breakdown following the LSD dosing was a further threat to everything the CIA had been working toward. What if he exposed everything, either inadvertently or otherwise? Furthermore, Olson being regarded as a man who didn't mince words didn't help the situation. At the order of Sidney Gottlieb, Frank was sent to see a doctor in New York City, Harold Abramson, who had been assisting the CIA in doing drug research. Abramson recommended that Olsen be hospitalized. Olsen agreed to it, and according to Ruit, his boss, was even looking forward to it. Frank went back to his hotel room on the 10th floor that night. Official reports state he jumped through the hotel window, an apparent act of suicide, and died on impact. Officially, it was ruled a suicide. That claim has often been called into question as suspicious. Frank Olsen left behind two sons, a daughter, and a wife. This story, the story of Harold Blower, and numerous others you will hear over the course of these episodes, transpired under the direction of Sidney Gottlieb, circling back to a question posed by the New York Times, was Gottlieb a villain? I'll leave that answer up to you, listener. And that's it for part one. Stay tuned, because we have more parts coming. This story isn't over yet. The history of the CIA is a dark one. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day?